So uh, for those that don't know, my name is Greg Chan, and I'm one of the elders in the church. And um, through the summer, we're, we have various guest speakers that are preaching the word and um, worshiping with the word. And um, as Dick had mentioned, we're going to have a transitional pastor that will be starting in September. So um, for myself, when I've been asked to preach, I've really stuck to Genesis. Genesis is the book that I enjoy reading from, and I think it's foundational for how we view everything, how we view scripture, how we view the world, how we view ourselves, how we view God. Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, gives us a foundation, a solid foundation on what to believe. So, um, I saw this cartoon recently, and I'll just leave it up here. Um, I'm going to, going to be going through Genesis 9, so if you want to follow along, you, please, please read along and take notes and uh, read it for yourself as well. It's not what I say that's true, it's God's word that's true. So I saw this cartoon recently, and I think it quite accurately describes how we are and how we have been since the beginning. Um, truth. So I'll just read the, the passage at the bottom. So 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So if we decide for ourselves, if we decide what is true, then we can do what we feel is happy, what we deserve, it's our life, it's our rules, and that'll lead to ruin. And Satan is actively calling us in that direction. But we have to remember that God determines truth. God determines truth. Careful, plain reading of God's word helps us in understanding truth according to what God determines is true. So we have to let God's word direct all aspects of our lives. So this uh, is just a review of the Genesis timeline thus far and the seven C's of the Bible. So the seven C's are creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, the cross, and consummation. The creation week occurs in Genesis 1 and 2. Corruption and the fall occurs in Genesis 3. Catastrophe, God's judgment on mankind, and his grace towards Noah and his family, that occurs in Genesis 6 to 8. So, there will be three general areas to review in Genesis 9. And the first will be new life. New life. So let's start. So I'll read, and then I'll, I'll um, we'll, we'll just go, go through the, the sermon. So. so verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the word blessed is a verb. It's an action. It's active adoration, 
And it's the same word that's used in the creation week in Genesis 1. And God instructs Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply. Both of those are verbs. Fruitful is to bring forth and increase. And multiply is to be exceeding, abundance, many. And fill is also a verb. It's, it's quite self-explanatory. It's to be full. Do you think that this is the first occurrence of this phrase, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Remember, this is after the global catastrophic worldwide flood. Let's go back to Genesis 1. <clears throat> so if we go back to Genesis 1, the same words are used, fruitful and multiply. And the same concept of filling and multiplication are found in creation day five. And the same words are used for fruitful and multiply. And the same concept of filling and multiplication is found in creation day six. So that's the second occurrence of these particular words that are used together. In Genesis eight, Again, in verse 17, the same words for fruitful and multiply and the same concept of filling and multiplication are found after the catastrophic flood in Genesis 8. So therefore, this is the fourth time that God is speaking to creation and to man to be fruitful and multiply. In verse 2, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Fear is a noun, it's a thing. Terror, reverence, and dread. Other uses of this particular word of fear in the Old Testament referred to what, God, what the Lord your God did to the Egyptians. And it's also relating to him, relating God to his people. We are to fear or revere God. Terror is also a noun. It's a thing. Fear, shattered, dismay, and alarm. So every beast, living thing, and animal, every bird, flying creatures, fowl, and winged insects, everything that creeps, everything that teems, walks on all fours, has short steps or swarms and fish. They are to have fear and terror of man. Let's contrast that with the creation week and before the flood. Remember, in the beginning, day five, sea creatures and fowl are created, and day six, animals and humans are created. Living creatures were created by God then the pinnacle of his creation, man, was created on day six. Other created beings and humans were living together without this fear and terror. Also in Genesis 2, verses 19 to 20, Adam was given responsibility and free will to name all the cattle, fowl, and beast. This is a job given to Adam by God to interact with and name other created beings. Again, there's no fear or terror here. 
there is interaction and they are living together. So, at this point, the relationship between created things and man has changed. I'll continue reading here. Verse 3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give, you, I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Every moving thing is a noun, and it's creeping things, gliding things, moving things. And all, the, all of that is food for Noah and his sons. And again, compare this with Genesis 1, where the creation week on day six, God commands and has provision for what is food for his created beings. Man is to eat the plant-yielding seed that's on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit-yielding seed is food for man. And for every beast, bird, and anything that moves on the earth which has life is to eat the green plant for food. Verse 4, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. With its life is a noun. It's a living being with, obviously, life in the blood. A breathing creature. So a living creature which has life, it has live, it's called a living being, and it's, it, it's what we consider alive. And it's because of the blood that's running through it. And the root words of the word blood are silent, still, quiet, Red. The red is similar to what is named for man, Adam. And it's, it's required. God says this three times. I will require it. Require is an action. It's to seek, demand, ask for. God will seek the lifeblood of every beast, every man, and every man's brother. Verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Uh, the word that stuck out here was shed. Shed is an action, it's a verb. It's to pour or to pour out, to spill, to commit slaughter. So in this passage, God specifically decrees in verse 6, a decree for a specific action of man and a consequence. And this wasn't present before, for shedding blood. And this does refer back to Genesis 1. And the reason why we are not to do this is because we are made in his image. Also in verse 7, this is the fifth time that God is speaking to creation and man to be fruitful and multiply. If we remember back to the incident with Cain and Abel, we see other descriptions of blood. Blood that carries life, and that's perceived by God, the voice of your brother's blood, and the earth, the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And this is when uh, Cain had slew Abel. 
God warned Cain not to let sin reign over him, and God placed a consequence for Cain. And I think it is actually interesting that Jesus uses imagery of flesh and blood with spirit and life in John 6. So John 6, verses 52 and onwards. So, then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And if we jump down to verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Here, I believe Jesus is pointing to the Last Supper, to the communion table. We believe Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior. We partake in communion. We have life if we believe in Christ. We enter into communion as Jesus commands us to, and in remembrance of him, his covenant is with us. So do we want the life Jesus is offering? Do we want the life that Jesus is offering? Then we need to take in the spirit and the word to be alive, to be truly alive. Okay, so the next section is about covenants. Covenant. Verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Uh, I always like the word behold, and if you read in different translations, it's low, low. It's like, pay attention to this. So it's an interjection. So it's telling you to pay attention to what God's going to say here. Lo, behold. Uh, God and Cain um, have used this term previously to, um, to speak to each other. And it's a, an expression of surprise. And I do want to note here that it says, I myself, and God is speaking here, to establish is an action to cause, arise, raise, build, make binding, or establish. The definition of covenant is a noun, it's a thing. It's a divine ordinance with signs or pledges. Divine ordinance with signs or pledges. And it's with your descendants, which are seed or offspring. Notice here that God establishes the covenant. It's similar to when God establishes a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others. And there's more that I'll speak to this later. God seems to explain repeatedly that he is the one to establish his covenant. I'll say that again. God is the one to establish his covenant. In this passage, this is the first instance where he, he states this explicitly. 
and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So who is the covenant between? God established his covenant with Noah and his sons and with every living creature with Noah on the ark. What is the covenant? Never again cut off by the water of the flood. Neither again be a flood to destroy the earth. And this is similar to Genesis 8, verse 21, where God states, I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Note that this is the second time where God states that he is the one to establish his covenant. Verse 12. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. A sign is a noun. It's a thing. It's a distinguishing mark, a token, or a banner. Successive is also a noun. It means forever, perpetual, always, indefinite. It's the same as the word everlasting. I set. So it's a verb where it means to give, bestow, grant, permit, consecrate, put, appoint, or make. And it's my bow. It's God's bow. It's a thing. And it's defined here as a rainbow, though the same word is used as a weapon, uh, as an actual bow in other places in the Old Testament. And it's in the cloud. So, this is a sign of the covenant, and it's set. And I know in these two verses, it talks about the covenant being set between God and Noah and every living creature. And it's located between, in verse 13 here, it's between me, capital M, me, God, and the earth. So it's in that expanse between God and the earth. Note that this is the third, God is the one to establish the covenant. And note, this is the first bow, bow in the cloud. Verse 14. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again the water shall, sorry, never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Note, this is the fourth, the fourth instance when God is saying that he is the one to establish his covenant. And note that this is the second bow. Bow will be seen in the cloud. God reiterates the covenant or the contract. Verse 16. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature 
of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Again, everlasting is forever, perpetual, always, and indefinite. It's the same as successive. Bow is in the cloud, and it's an everlasting covenant to never destroy all flesh with a flood. And note, this is the fifth time that God is the one to establish his covenant. And note that this is the third time that God is describing this bow in the cloud. It's like we, we need to hear it over and over again to, to know that this is, this is established in this particular way, and it's designed in this fashion, the sign. So, a key message about the covenant. Covenant is a promise from God. It's a promise from God to never again cut off all flesh, never destroy the earth, never destroy all flesh by flooding it as described in Genesis 6 and 7. So he said he was never going to do this again. So therefore, this was not a local flood. This was not a mythological history or allegory. There are some in our in Christian circles that will say that Genesis is a mytho-history and that it has no plain reading or that it's not true. It's not actual documented history. The flood of Noah's day is true. The people and events are referenced by Jesus Christ and other writers in the Bible. There has never been a catastrophic worldwide flood since this event. And this is important, because it's whether we take a high view of Scripture or not. God has promised, and God does not lie. We will never see a worldwide catastrophic flood again. God promised, and his promises are true. Floods happen all the time, and to say that this is a local small flood would be to call God a liar. And though we cannot go back in time to observe the events of this flood, we can observe clues, archaeological and geological signs. Those signs are evidence that we can and should interpret with a biblical worldview, not man's view. What about the future? Climate alarmist propaganda is ongoing and it's ramping up. And I remember as a child, when I was going through school, they talked about rising sea levels and watch out for Los Angeles. You know, it's going to be covered in water. And I was, I was scared as a child, being concerned about that. And I wanted to recycle everything that I had and I wanted to do good works for the, the environment. But, I mean, could we actually have melting glaciers and rising sea levels and water covering the earth again? No, no. God's word is true. Another key message is about the bow. It's described again as a bow in the cloud. And when the bow is seen in the cloud, and bow is in the cloud. And I think I've seen this here and there where um, Christians are upset about the bow being supplanted or taken by other 
ideologically popular ideas about gender theory. And really, I, I didn't want to want to place their flag here because I, I think it has no place in our church, and I will not put it on, our, on my slide to talk about it. I'll just speak about it. But yes, they may have taken the colors and put it on a flag or put it as a symbol that they want people to wear, but that actually isn't the symbol. The symbol is the bow in the cloud, bow in the cloud. They go together, they go hand in hand. So they can take whatever they want, is my, my opinion, and that's, but we know what is true from God's word. And the actual sign of his covenant is a bow with the cloud. So early this morning, I thought, well, rainbows. I, I don't know why that thought came to me, so I had to go back to my physics textbook from first year university to look this up. <laughs> so I'll try and explain it, and it's, hopefully it's not too, too out there. And I know we're not supposed to use external sources to talk about God's word, but this, this really kind of shines as far as how God created the rainbow and how it's, it, it just floors you to think about the physics behind it, okay? So here's a slide on the physics of rainbows. We see rainbows when sunlight is projected towards a raindrop, this water droplet. Sunlight is projected towards a raindrop and the raindrop is surrounded by air. The interface between air and the water in the raindrop, both of them have different properties with respect to light. These properties of air and water are different, and it's calculated by something called the refractive index. So they have a different refractive index, okay? The refractive index of water is different from air, and because of that difference, the light is bent, similar to when you're trying to fish for, with a spear. When you're looking at it through the water, it's not actually where it is. It's actually off by a bit because the light is being bent as it's coming up towards you. Okay? So the light is bent and it's split at the interface. So right, right here. Um, so it's bent, the light direction changes. It's split, so the light is spread out into different wavelengths. It's dispersed, that's the technical term for it, is light is dispersed. So sunlight contains all the colors and wavelengths and it's compressed together. Okay, so you guys follow that? Okay, all right. The back of the raindrop reflects the colors, so right at this point here, okay? The angle of the light hitting the back of the raindrop has a critical angle to reflect. Like, it has to be just right. It can't be like a, a few degrees more or a few degrees less. It has to be exactly right. The colors then interface from water in here where it's all split and back to air and it gets bent again but it can't be split because it's already been split, okay? It's already been split when the light entered the raindrop, okay? So when we see a rainbow, pretend this is you, when you see a rainbow, we see one color from any given raindrop 
because it's just the right angle from our vantage point. Okay, remember that each raindrop is doing this. It's, it's spinning out all these colors towards you. The sun's behind you, the clouds are here, there's rain that's in front of you, and then all these colors are being shot towards you. You see a nice, nice rainbow here, okay? Okay, each raindrop is dispersing the whole range of colors. All colors are visible because each color originates from, a, from different droplets at different angles of elevation, okay? So I'll just say this in a different way. The higher raindrops, you're seeing red because it's at the right angle to our eyes where you're standing, okay? Then you'll see orange, and then you'll see yellow, green, blue, indigo, and then the lower raindrop is sending violet. Is It's at the right angle for that to hit your eye here. Okay, the red's coming from the raindrops that are dropping at that level, and then as it drops, it'll, you'll see the violet coming down. So, does that make sense, saying it like that? Okay. So for us to see a rainbow, you need sunlight coming from behind you. The rain must be falling in front of us, and the rain comes from the clouds. Bow is seen here in the cloud. Okay. This is precise, and it's exact. God's creation points to him. He's, he's, very, he's amazingly supernaturally clever. Okay. But think, think about this. This is before the flood. Oh, sorry, no, sorry. This is after the flood. This is after the flood, post-flood. But think about before the flood. Would it be possible to see rainbows? If the surrounding area around the raindrop is changed, and it's not, what I mean to say is that it's not air as we know it today, light would be bent differently, or you wouldn't get any bending of light at all, okay? Remember, there has to be a difference in the refractive index of air and water. So if the air is so dense that it's similar to the density of water, then the light won't be bent. Um, <clears throat> and remember, it's been recorded in Scripture that it had never rained before a flood. There may have been a mist that came up from the earth to water the, the plants. The flood was a catastrophic change to the earth above and below. is an atmospheric change. There were waters that came down that were being held above. And lifespans of people were vastly different pre and post flood. There were different organisms that were alive pre flood. So putting that together, I suspect that we wouldn't have seen rainbows prior to the flood. After the flood, the conditions were just right for us to be able to see rainbows because of the change in the atmosphere around the raindrops. So God's design is, is amazing. So another thing is covenant. And those of you in our Bible class might re recognize the color scheme here, but uh, covenant is a serious agreement or promise. Um, <clears throat> so I want to highlight here what the difference is between man's covenants and God's covenants. Specifically looking at how God 
puts covenants together. So let's go to Genesis 15, verses 9 and 10 and onwards. So in this passage, God appears to Abraham in a vision and promises protection and reward. Abraham describes his childless situation, and God tells Abraham the number of descendants will be like the stars in the heavens. Abraham asks how he will know that the land promised will come to pass. So, in verse 9, so God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he, Abraham, sorry, then he, Abraham, brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. <clears throat> the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God then describes the future events, the enslavement in Egypt of the Israelites, and then deliverance. So we jump ahead to verse 17. It came about that, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then the chapter finishes describing the other people groups living in the land promised to Abram. Let's look at the New Testament. So Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. And this is at the Last Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So what's the difference between man's covenants and God's covenants? In God's covenants, God makes the covenant without input or design from man. Man participates in the acceptance. Abraham participates by arranging the sacrifice. He does not deny the arrangement, but he's asleep. He's asleep during this covenant. The disciples participate by sitting at the table and taking the cup, but they didn't design this agreement. God has a plan and a purpose He's perfect, and his promises and covenants are trustworthy because he has designed the covenant. And again, another way to say that it is that it was not designed by fallible men. As we'll read later in this chapter, Noah, who is deemed righteous by God, still has free will and exercises it. Man can be righteous in God's eyes and still make his own choices. Man is fallible. 
But man should not design the contract with God. God designs the contract with us, and we have to decide whether we're going along with it or not. It is God's covenant and God's promise. The last section is Noah and his sons. Verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Remember that a careful review of the text shows that Japheth is the elder. And based on the text and working out the timestamps, that's how we figure that out. But um, I have to apologize because I made a mistake when I was preaching previously, and I apologize to you for making this mistake. I was wrong in putting the order as Jem, sorry, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Because in verse 24 in this chapter, Ham is, is named as the youngest. Ham is named as the youngest. And I don't think this changes this arrangement or the time frames and how it all fits together because Japheth is still the elder. He's born first. Shem has to be 100 years old when he has Arphaxad. And Arphaxad is born two years after the flood. Noah has children when he is 500 years old. And remember, the flood occurs when Noah is 600 years old. So putting all those numbers together, this timeline still fits um, if you switch Ham and Shem for the order in, in the rank between the, the sons. So verse 19, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the whole earth was populated. Populated is a verb, and it means dispense or shatter. The entire earth was populated from Noah's sons. We are descendants of Adam, Seth, all the generations listed in Genesis 5, through Noah and his sons. Verse 20, then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Uncovered is an action, it's a verb, to reveal oneself. But if you look at the, the Hebrew word and the Strong's Concordance numbers for it, it's actually different from the other naked words that are found in Genesis 2 and 3. So when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and then after they had taken the fruit, there's a different Hebrew word for naked. So in Genesis 2, they were naked and not ashamed. Genesis 3, they were naked and ashamed, so they made cloths for themselves, or sorry, they made coverings for themselves from plants. So this word for uncovered is, is different. It's to reveal oneself. And I'll get into that in the next slide. But um, here, Noah was deemed righteous by God. He still has free will, and he exercises it. So man can be righteous in God's eyes and still make his own choices. Remember that man is fallible, but God is infallible. God does not make mistakes. Man can choose and turn away from God. God makes the promise and the covenant, 
God does not lie or break promises or covenants. And I believe this is why God makes the covenant without input from Noah or his sons, because we are fallible beings. Okay, in verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. So nakedness in verse 22 and in 23 is a noun. It's implying shameful exposure, shameful exposure. One of the words that's described when you look it up is pudenda, pudenda. And actually, that's, that's a medical term, is if you know the anatomy of, of um, the pelvic floor, which is at the bottom of your pelvis, um, there's a nerve that's there, and it's called the pudendal nerve. So I, I'm, I'm not quite sure why that, name, that word is included in this particular Hebrew word and why that's included in the definitions, um, except that it was a shameful exposure of himself. So this might be more than just like walking across the room and being seen, because he's showing his pudendal area, which is an area that is not supposed to be shown to other people. But that is actually a medical term. There's a nerve that's called the pudendal nerve. Ham, the, f- the father of Canaan, saw the shameful exposure and told his brothers. Now, there's debate about whether there's more to this or not. And, you know, I, I, I don't see, looking at the Hebrew words, that there is more to it than just a shameful exposure and being viewed. And I'm, I'm sure that we could debate different directions on it, but um, it would be interesting to look into it deeper. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, a covering, a mantle, or a cloth, and they covered or they concealed the nakedness of their father. The same word for covered is the same word used to describe the flood water covering the earth in Genesis 7. Shem and Japheth had their faces turned away and did not see Noah's shameful exposure. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. So note who is the youngest. It was Ham. And I obviously didn't read that carefully enough a few sermons ago. In verse 25, there's a decree by Noah. Canaan, not Ham, Canaan will be the servant to Shem and Japheth. Verse 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the Lord, the God, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So again, Canaan, not Ham, will be the servant to Shem and Japheth. And this is, this is stated a total of three times. And the chapter ends here with verses 28 and 29. 
Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So that brings us to the end of Genesis 9. And I'd like to just highlight a few points for application for Genesis 9. Number one, God offers us and gives us new life. And this discussion of new life in Genesis 9, I think, is pointing towards the sacrifice and shed blood of Jesus Christ. So, do you believe in him? Do you trust him? Do you confess that he is your Lord and Savior? And do you follow him? The second point is that God creates the covenant. It's his design. Do you choose to accept it? Do you choose to enter into covenant with God? And he makes perfect covenants. And number three, man is fallible. We are still designed with free will. But will we submit that to be underneath his word? Where has God not reigned in your life? In your personal life? In work? In your attitudes? In your callings? In your focusing of your mind and heart towards him, so in your relationships with God and with others? Where do we need to be reformed? What do you need God to help you with to reform? Ask him to show you. And my encouragement at the end of this passage is to be renewed. We are not to stay the same. We are to be changed by God, by his word, and we are to move in a different direction where he calls us. So Noah was righteous, he was fallible, but we are also fallible, and we can be renewed and restored by coming to him. What do we need to confess? What do we need to ask forgiveness for? What things in our lives do we need to drop so that we can accept what he's got for us? Let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you give us your word. Your word is true, and you're amazing in how you've revealed yourself to us through your word and through creation. And we thank you that you care for us and that you call us back to you. And you you ask us to come to you for help. So we thank you for this and... Um, may your word continue to sink deep into our hearts and to our minds and to change us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.